WHMP. Good afternoon on this beautiful Monday afternoon. My name is Brian Adams, and I'm filling in for Buzz, who is on his way back from a trip to the Outer Banks in North Carolina. Um, and I will be your host for this interesting first half hour, and then we'll have Cabin Fever Roundtable for the second half hour. We are so fortunate to live in the Valley with so many vibrant uh, community, active community organizations that are doing all sorts of good work. And um, it's not just true in the Valley, but it's true in the, in, the, in the country as well. And a lot of these organizations are very small. They don't have staff. They're volunteer-driven. And money becomes a big issue. Who's going to fund volunteer organizations? And we're also so fortunate to have in the Valley the Peace Development Fund. It's a grant-making foundation in Amherst, Massachusetts, that focuses on issues of peace, human rights, social justice, and environmental protection. And we're triply uh, uh, blessed today to have two folks from the Peace Development Fund joining us. Laura Wondolowski is the Director of Advancement and Communication. She's the one that raises money. And Emily Serafi Cox is a foundation officer. She's the one that gives out the money. Did I get that right? You did. I Thanks, did. Thanks Thank for having us. Thank you both for, for being here. Can you begin by telling us who PDF is and what do you do? Sure. I'm going to let Emily take this. <laughs> um, so the Peace Development Fund was founded just over 40 years ago. Uh, when it was first founded, it was on the heels of the Vietnam War and was founded as a way to, as the name implies, to fund the peace movement. And at the time, that was a lot of anti-nuclear organizing, uh, anti-military uh, recruitment work was funded through the Peace Development Fund. Over the years, that has shifted into a much um, broader uh, vision of social justice work um, that we know that we cannot have peace without justice. And so uh, the Peace Development Fund funds all social justice work, uh, uh, all social justice issues, I should say, um, that are, are led by an, uh, organizations that are led by the, the folks most impacted by an issue and that are utilizing community organizing. So um, folks who are, are in the community working to create um, systemic change um, to, to get at the root causes of injustice and, uh, and make it so that their community can actually determine their own future. Uh, so, so that is the, the focus and especially on small organizations. As you mentioned, a lot of volunteer organizations or organizations that just have like one or two staff members, maybe even just working part-time. So um, really the, the grassroots part of, uh, of the social justice movement in this country. You talk about the uh, four pillars of grant making. I was reading your, your, your website, and these are the organizations that you fund, and those pillars are organizing to shift power, correct me if I'm wrong here, mm -hmm. working to build a movement, dismantling oppression, and creating new structures. Those are lofty and <laughs> ambitious goals. We Absolutely. want them all to happen. Uh, can you give some specifics of some of the groups that you fund and some of the work that they do? Absolutely. Um, one group that I would maybe point to, uh, we, we funded last year um, um, in New York State. Um, and of course, at the moment, I can't think of, of the name of the group, but of course not. Of course not. <laughs> um, they're led by folks who are currently incarcerated. Um, and working with family members uh, on the outside. So uh, they're, they're getting information to, to folks who don't have information about what is either happening on the inside or what is happening on the outside. And then um, utilizing um, those, those conduits for information to, um, to give pressure, um, bear pressure on the decision makers uh, to to change conditions both in the prison as well as to build a broader movement for abolition uh, of, the, of the carceral system, prison system. And who knows better about incarceration than those that are currently incarcerated? Precisely. Um, and that's, uh, that's so exciting. I mean, who, you know, who else is funding that? You are unique, I think, the Peace Development Fund, in really being the go-to 
foundation for some of these groups that would really struggle to get money elsewhere. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Uh, I, I know one of the things that I think we're proud of is being often the first gift that some small organizations get um, because we make our process pretty straightforward and easy to access um, so that groups don't have to write an extensive letter of interest first or know somebody inside the foundation before they can even get their foot in the door. It's like, how do you get your first job? It's by having a job. Right. Um, yeah. How do you get your first grant? It's by getting a grant, and, and, and PDF is so instrumental in that. Let's stick with you, Laura. Uh, I interview a lot of climate change activists on this show, as some as young as 10 years old who are oh, doing okay. such wonderful work. You have an extensive background in the environmental movement, and you're fairly new to PDF coming from the environmental movement. Can you talk about PDF's efforts to fund environmental groups, climate change activism, some of those groups? Sure. Um, yeah, that, that is my passion. It's been my passion throughout my career. So um, I was really excited about the opportunity to work for Peace Development Fund because of the broad range of issues that we support. Um, I am not as familiar about, with the individual groups as my colleague Emily is, but um, what we're seeing, uh, one of the things I'm really excited about is our Braiding New Worlds Fund, which is focusing on youth organizing, and the grant decision makers are also young people. Um, and if you look at climate change right now, it is a lot of young people that are leading the movement. Um, you know, wh whether it's the groups that come out that came out of Greta Thunberg's, the the Friday folks, or the Sunrise Movement. Um, you know, we need to be funding those youth movements. Um, and over the years, we have funded lots and lots of organizations working on environmental issues. And I think you were you looked up the numbers on that. I did. I I don't have them off the top of my head, but um, in terms of one of the organizations that was funded through the Braiding New Worlds initiative, which we launched to celebrate our 40th anniversary, actually, um, uh, is called People of the Confluence. Yeah. And um, indeed, youth are, are um, uh, at the forefront of uh, the climate justice work, um, as well as indigenous people in this country. And um, PDF has a long history of supporting um, the in indigenous rights movement and and uh, folks in the native community uh, for self-determination. Um, and so people of the confluence actually is both of those things, yeah. uh, working um, um, uh, both youth and elders in um, native communities in um, n the Pacific Northwest to um, understand about how uh, how the environment works, and then utilize uh, that that information to make change um, in in their own communities. Um, so that's that to me speaks to the beauty of not having a specific issue focus uh, as a foundation that we can support groups that are so intersectional in their approach. Because um, this is uh, this is indigenous rights and it's health justice and it's food justice and it's climate justice and it's and it's and it's it's all of the things that are wrapped up together. Mm. Uh, so everything is connected to everything else. Mm. That intersectionality, I'd never heard that word before. I think the women's uh, march when when uh, when Trump came into office, and it does really. Uh, speak eloquently to this interconnectedness to, to all to all social movements. Um, let's talk about the grant making process. You give out a lot of money. Who makes those decisions of who to fund? How does how does it all work? That's a great question. So, you know, we're typically giving out um, through our own funds, but then there's all kinds of other money. We're also moving uh, about two hundred thousand, one hundred eighty-five thousand a year. Um, we have our national grant making, um, which is about $100,000. And that is decisions made by the board and the staff working together. Um, we do that grant cycle once a year. And, uh, you know, this, this year was it about 18, 19 organizations who received funding. Um, and again, we're looking at organizations with, you know, smaller budgets, um, 
under $250,000, but we work closely with our board of directors, and that's driven by the board. We also have, as, as we were talking about, our Braiding New Worlds Fund. Um, that fund is all volunteers, and they are, it's young people, um, 18 to 25, who are making those grant-making decisions, working with our staff, um, obviously ha having that expertise. Um, and then we also have a fund that's focused on the Valley. So that's our Valley Community Advised Fund. Um, and the decision makers on that are all local folks. So we've got an advisory committee that makes decisions on, on that program. Mm -hmm. So it's it's interesting that I think you said a hundred thousand from the general fund is is given out to nineteen organizations. They're very small grants, yeah. Uh, but they are, are remarkable in what people can do with a little bit of money. Uh, and in fact, you specify in your grant making that you don't give money to organizations that have large budgets. Um, can you talk about the how the vibrancy of these small social change organizations? Yeah. I had a, a, a one of our donors um, was very honest with me and and said to me, you know, I, I'm I'm looking at where to put my money and I want it to go towards something that's really impactful. Can you talk about why it is that I should support these, you know, couple dozen organizations across the country that are so small? It it seems like they're so local. And how would that have a national impact? And when we when we when we delve into the work that these organizations are doing, um, they are they are collaborating with other organizations, building larger movements. That's a part of our criteria: is focusing on organizations that are building those larger movements. And these are the seeds. If you don't water your seeds, you are not going to have a garden come July. And so PDF is, is, is watering those seeds every day with these grants, um, building that, that broader movement um, for down the road. I, I think that's a really good point, Emily, because if you picture a group working in Seattle doing the work and then another group in New Mexico, and you know, you've got these ripple effects of, of really reinforcing one another all around the country so that it's not just this isolated $500 in one community. And we also do try and work to figure out how to better connect people so that you don't feel like you're alone out there doing the work, but how, how can we make our money go further? Um, and we also do a capacity building, which is really important, helping these groups um, do more and be more effective. That's exciting. So not only is it just directly funding their activities, but helping them connect with each other and helping them build, as you said, organizational capacity to do the good work that they are doing in the world. We're talking this afternoon with Laura Wondolowski. She is a director of advancement communication and Emily Serafie Cox, the foundation officer, both of the Peace Development Fund. We will continue this conversation in just a moment when we'll be right back. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2, only on WHMP. Brought to you by Greenfield Savings Bank, with offices all throughout Hampshire and Franklin counties. Greenfieldsavings.com. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP. Hi, it's Jessica, owner of Fitness Together in Amherst and Northampton. As the weather gets warmer, I know many of you are thinking about your summer workout schedule. And if you're like me, it's all about finding work, life, and workout balance, which is why when you sign up at Fitness Together, you'll put a schedule together with your personal trainer that actually works for you, is stress-free, and will help you stay fit, healthy, and balanced. Visit us online today at fitnesstogether.com, Amherst, or Northampton, and sign up for your free consultation. Right in your town, maybe even in your neighborhood, an immigrant is building a new life, trying to find their way. 
all while learning a new language. The International Language Institute offers free English classes for immigrants and refugees, for true beginners and others, like students in our Bridge to College and Careers program. One of the nation's top language schools is right here, with free English classes for immigrants and refugees. The International Language Institute in downtown Northampton. My name is Silas Cobb. I'm a furniture designer and I work in East Hampton and rented space in the building owned by Riverside Industries. So I got to rub elbows with the people who are in the program. Went away with a great appreciation for the work that they're doing for supporting people with developmental disabilities. I've become friends with lots of the people in the program over the years. I have employed some of the people with many of the people. We go to a baseball game every year. It's clear to me that Riverside is offering people a reason to get up in the morning. There's a social life surrounding Riverside Industries. People are given a chance to work up to their abilities. People will share their paychecks with me, not the money, but the amount that they've earned in a week. And there's some great pride surrounding all of that. Maybe setting aside a little money so they can go to that baseball game. Any stigma that I might have attached to them has melted away over the years. People, regardless of those circumstances, are pretty much like I am. We're all very similar. RSI.org. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. And we're the Afternoon Buzz, and we are buzzless. Again, my name is Brian Adams. I'm the guest host, speaking with Laura Wondolowski and Emily Serafi-Cox of the Peace Development Fund about the vibrant work that they do as a grant-making foundation out of Amherst, Mass., focusing on issues of peace, human rights, social justice, and environmental protection. The organizations that PDF funds uh, are have goals that are so broad and all-encompassing, like dismantling oppression. <laughs> um, how do you know that the organizations that you give money to are successful in their work? How do you how do you gauge success? I mean, funders want to know their money's going to an impactful group. How how do you gauge that impact? Yes. That's a great question that, you know, we're, we're, we're st still working to figure out um, because we both don't want to make the reporting so hard for an organization that they can't actually do the work, but we also want to see the impact. I mean, I know there are so many stories about our organizations um, going from these really small to becoming multi-million dollar organizations who are making huge impacts um, many years later, so... Those are some of some of our successes, but I know you can point to a whole lot more, Emily. Yeah, I mean, I guess one of the things I would point out there is definitely to emphasize that um, the Peace Development Fund trusts organizers. We uh, we go through a pretty rigorous uh, vetting process. It includes, you know, both a written application as well as interviews with uh, with people within the organization and references outside the organization. So after all that, then we give a, a, a grant that doesn't have strings attached to it. It's not like they have to send us back specific deliverables. Um, uh, and and that's about trust. It's trust based or uh, trust based giving, grant making. And um, so, with that caveat, we also can see uh, the the results of the work because our grantees will you know send us stories and say, oh my gosh, because of your grant, we were able to do XYZ thing. One uh, grantee that I uh, can think of was working in collaboration with other groups in uh, in Connecticut and just last year, Connecticut became the first state in the nation to make it free for uh, incarcerated people to make a phone call. Well, and that's a big deal mm -hmm. when you are Huge. in prison and have no money Brian, and access to the outside world. Dan? May I ask a question? Uh, I, I want to bring up the issue that I hear a lot from politicians and individuals all around, uh, I guess, Massachusetts, because it's an election year, and talk about housing and the need for housing seems to be a dire and critical issue, which has been for a very long time. So I'm wondering, could you tell us a little bit about any investments being made in that area? Yeah. I mean, Springfield No One Leaves is an easy one to point to that that your listeners uh, hopefully have heard of. And if they haven't, they should look 
look them up. What do they do? They are um, organizing both tenants and homeowners uh, around uh, anti-eviction work and uh, and I mean the name Springfield No One Leaves. It's combating uh, displacement from gentrification and so forth, and the commodification of housing, like how housing now is mm, something to be traded as though it were currency. Um, uh, it rips away the humanity from from people's homes. And so uh, part of shifting that is is the work that that these groups are doing around uh, putting the human face on what it means to have a home or not have a home. Mm-hmm. Um, another another thing that uh, that I can think of is in Phoenix. Um, you know, Phoenix, it, it, it's like 100 and whatever, like the, the temperatures that we had. out right, right now. I, oh, I was going to say oh. the temperatures we had this weekend are nothing in Phoenix. Yeah. So, uh, so imagine being um, without a house, without a, a place to sleep at night uh, or to be during the day legally uh, in Phoenix. And there is an organization led by people who are in that situation who are trying to change it, uh, decriminalizing being without a place to be mm-hmm. uh, because that was a huge issue. People were being thrown into jail for not having a house, basically. Uh, and uh, so that's you know one step. And then the, the broader step is, is building that power so that that community can, can shape its future. It's really challenging times for progressives these days. There's just so much bad news out there with the Supreme, or should we call them extreme court, mm-hmm. coming down. Um, how do you retain a sense of optimism uh, in the face of such repeated, this repeated onslaught against democracy? Because both of you seem very optimistic. You're funding groups that I imagine are optimistic because they're out there on the front lines doing the work. How how do you retain that optimism? I mean, I I think you just answered that question. <laughs> um, for me, it's it's hearing from these organizations. You know, we had a Zoom call with a number of different groups that we were helping to uh, so that they could fundraise their own money um, on top of the grant that we gave, and hearing each of their stories and the work that they're doing in their communities just gives me hope, you know, that people who don't look like me um, and, you know, you, you name a box um, are out there doing this work and, and, and making progress. And that gives me hope. Emily? Yeah. Um, prior to, to moving to Massachusetts, I lived in California for 10 years. And we think of California now as a, a bastion of progressive politics, what have you, but it wasn't always that way. I mean, Ronald Reagan came from California for good reason, because uh, California was a place that had very repressive, regressive, excuse me, um, policies and, and politics. Um, and the, the Prop 187 movement mm-hmm. uh, in the 1980s was a prime example of that. Uh, for those of you who don't know, it was an anti-immigration, uh, anti-immigrant um, uh, proposition that uh, that was on the ballot in California, and the opposition movement to that uh, to that proposition um, was made up of young people, made up of of people who had never been in any sort of movement before, and regardless of what the outcome of that particular proposition was, and I believe that it passed the 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 yeah the, the, yeah, the regress the regressive policies passed in that moment. But fast forward 30, 40 years, and folks from that movement are now the president of the state senate in California, leading some of the largest and most impactful nonprofits in California, uh, have taken positions in business in California. And we have seen a sea change in California because of the leaders that came out of a failed movement. And so if we look at Black Lives Matter, the, the, the flash in the pan that some folks think may have happened two summers ago during, um, in you know, Minneapolis and elsewhere uh, during George Floyd, 
I see leaders of, you know, of 5, 10, 30, 40 years from now who are going to be bringing that experience into their work. That's a nice optimistic note to end on. Unfortunately, we're just about out of time. We've been talking with Laura Wondolowski and Emily Serafie Cox of the Peace Development Fund. Very quickly, if folks are interested in donating money or if groups are interested in uh, applying to get a grant, how can they contact PDA? Sure. Just go to our website, peacedevelopmentfund.org. And it's a wonderful website with all sorts of information. Thank you both of us for joining us. Appreciate having you in. Uh, stick around. Uh, the second half of the hour, we'll be back with Megan Zinn for Cabin Fever Roundtable. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. The Afternoon Buzz is brought to you by Lundgren, family-run since 1964. Greenfield's largest automotive group is the place to buy your next Honda, Chrysler, Jeep, Dodge, or Ram. Experience it in Greenfield. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Several Western Mass municipalities, including Hadley and Greenfield, are ordering water use bans as the entire Connecticut River Valley is now in a level 2 drought following a major heat wave over the weekend. Severe storms from today could help bring some more water into the valley, but are not expected to end the drought. Some forward movement on a possible rail trail for Southampton. The town has secured a $300,000 Mass Trails grant to take a look at the three-and-a-half-mile railroad corridor that has been inactive for more than 30 years. The grant will be used to begin the design, engineering, and permitting process for the new rail trail, which would extend from Coleman Road to College Highway. The town has been pursuing the project for more than a decade. The town of Amherst will hold a forum to discuss the removal of their famed Merry Maple Tree and two other Norway trees located in front of the town hall on the North Common. The forum will be on August 9th at 5 p.m. Public comment will be welcome at the meeting. The teardown will be part of a complete overhaul of the North Common over the next year, which is expected to cost $1.8 million. And Westfield officials will host environmental public hearings today and tomorrow on three construction projects, totaling more than $17 million at Westfield Barnes Regional Airport. Today's meeting took place at 2 p.m. virtually to discuss the relocation and construction of Taxiway B South, construction of a new taxiway in the airport's southwest quadrant, and obstruction clearing on runway 15. An in-person discussion will be held tomorrow at 6 p.m. in the airport terminal building conference room. For the rest of today, mostly cloudy with showers and thunderstorms, highs 84 to 88. Tonight, chance for an evening shower, thunderstorm, otherwise partly cloudy, overnight lows around 60. And like for Tuesday, mostly sunny, highs in the lower 80s. I'm 22 New Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 1015 WHMP. Three questions. Ready? How many billionaires do we have in Massachusetts? How much richer have they gotten during the pandemic? And how much do they and should they pay in taxes? Join us when we speak with Chuck Collins from the Institute for Policy Studies and co-author of the recent report, Bay State Billionaires. Chuck Collins will be our guest Tuesday at 9 o'clock. Bill Newman, weekdays at 9 and again at 5. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts. Martha Graham, Mum and Shantz, Blind Boys, Cherish the Ladies, Peking Acrobats, Ukraine Philharmonic, Nikki, and Stomp, all on their way to the UMass Fine Arts Center. Mum and Shantz in their 50th year, Cherish the Ladies, A Celtic Christmas, the Martha Graham Dance Company with the lost Graham masterwork, Canticle for Innocent Comedians. Snarky Puppy unleashes their ferocious improvisation. Nikki shines a ray of pop sunshine. And Gina Chavez blends the sound of the Americas with tension and grace. Dance, classical, jazz, theater, plus performances you just can't categorize. Stomp arrives for three performances. Head-turning trumpeter Sean Jones leads his quartet on stage, plus visits the UMass High School Jazz Festival. Plan now for a season of uplifting arts performances. Go to the UMass Fine Arts Center website for the full calendar and tickets. Who's your healthcare hero? Business West and the Healthcare News welcome your nomination for the 6th Annual Healthcare Heroes Awards. On the front lines or behind the scenes, 
in the hospital, administrative office, the lab, the neighborhood clinic or medical office, who's making a vital contribution to the quality of life in our communities. It's time to recognize their efforts. The deadline for nominations is July 30th. Go to businesswest.com or healthcarenews.com to nominate your healthcare hero. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. And this is Megan Zinn with Cabin Fever Roundtable. Um, and my guests this afternoon are Theo Zinn and Sydney Schultz. Um, and we are, well, I'll introduce them, then I'll, I'll say what we're going to talk about. Uh, Theo is a Northampton native, and he'll be a sophomore at Drexel University in Philadelphia in the fall, where he's majoring in art history and photography. And full disclosure, he's also my son. Um, and uh, Sydney is from Los Angeles. Um, she's also a student at Drexel. She'll be a sophomore in the fall as well. And she's majoring in entertainment and arts management. Um, and on Sunday, Theo and Sydney are going to Edinburgh, Scotland, um, where they will spend all of August working on the Edinburgh F Fringe Festival as part of a Drexel program. And I'm really, really, really jealous. Um, and I'm going to make Theo text me every day and tell me what they're doing just to be the annoying parent. Um, so I'm going to talk today to, to Theo and Sid about their experiences being in high school and college during the pandemic and that sort of ongoing experience because we're not done. Um, and, um, so I'm going to first tell me, um, starting with Theo, where were you in your life when the first shutdown happened? It was, you know, around halfway through the second semester of my senior year in high school. And I distinctly remember it being, I was in English class and we were all just talking about the pandemic and whether or not it was going to shut everything down. And all the kids were talking about it just being two weeks, even though just a week. Mm -hmm. And that was March 13th, a Friday. And basically everyone was walking around the building and it weirdly felt like things were coming to an end. And I was like saying goodbye to people because everyone was assuming that we were going to get the call that night. Yeah. And so I went home that day and I remember sitting, playing with my dog and I get this <laughs> text that yeah. we're like two, two weeks off from school. I'm like, oh, cool. And I went to a friend's house and hung out and acted like, you know, it was a two-week break. But there was like a little, you know, talking retrospectively, I can't say whether or not I knew at the time. But yeah, I was in a state of just, I'm a high school kid. I get two weeks off. And I had no idea what was going to happen. Yeah. And Sydney, where were, what was your situation? So I'm a year younger than Teo is. So I was a junior in high school. Mm -hmm. And California school systems, the schedule's a little bit different. So I also remember clearly Friday, March 13th. I think everybody who was in high school does. Um, it was actually our last day before spring break. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. So I remember all of us were freaking out, talking to our teachers, wondering if when we got back from spring break, like if we would get back. Mm -hmm. break. Right, right. <laughs> and I remember I was at my friend Izzy's house and we all got an email that our spring break was now two weeks long. Uh huh. And then... I immediately knew in my mm -hmm. head, I was like, I don't think I'm finishing my junior year. I'll see about senior. But I remember that news was just hard. But I remember I had an extra year of high school, so I didn't know what it would look like, how school would be, yeah. not in person. Yeah. Um, did, it, um, did it cause any sort of major changes in your life at that point? Yeah. For me, it was weird because my sister had moved away. Mm -hmm. so she went to college and then she had to come back home which was a major shift in transition. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, and then I just remember junior year was kind of when I was starting to have like a really good time in high school. Mm. And my, all my awkward oh, years had like oh, passed geez. and I was actually finding my groove. And then immediately just a wrench was thrown in that plan and I couldn't see anyone and I got really, really sad mm -hmm. and upset, just feeling really alone. So it was, it was, it was yeah. not fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and Theo, did it make any major changes for you? For me, I can barely remember kind of what my life felt like or where it was going mm -hmm. at the time because, you know, at the time I was still going to Drexel. I still had that plan. Or I think yeah. it had just been had just about decided, finalized, yeah. something mm -hmm. like that. And I was going in for film. And literally just that day, I was going to a friend's house to film their a senior project mm -hmm. for my school. I had my camera. Like, this was what I was doing. Now I am full-on photographer. I know it's not that different, but 
I am now a photographer. I've completely left film behind. I've changed majors, even though I'm still at the school. And like, because it's during that pandemic, I couldn't film anything. I couldn't write anything. What I wrote couldn't be filmed, anything like that. I couldn't find anyone to work on any film projects because it is a pandemic. All I had was myself and a camera. And so I would go out and all I could do was take pictures. Mm -hmm. And I would take more pictures. And I started to really like taking pictures. Mm -hmm. And it was a lot easier than film. Yeah. And so I sort of just started to move on from film. And even though I was still in the major at the time, I was going out when I got to Philadelphia to clubs and to concerts and to house shows and shooting them with my camera and getting photos and not filming them. And then it was just the natural decision in my head to leave film behind. And that's completely changed the course of my life because my plan was to enter the film industry. Yeah. So it it definitely did change the progression. Um, Sid, how did it change? Did it impact your college plans or was, or did you make any changes in that year before you left? Yeah. um, About a year into the pandemic, I noticed my mental health was starting to fail Mm -hmm. pretty bad. Mm -hmm. And I fully questioned going to college because mm-hmm. I knew Drexel was my top choice yeah. from the beginning. But I do remember in December of 2020, it hit a point of I got so used to being at home and so used to being with my parents mm-hmm. that I didn't know if I'd be okay moving across the country right. by myself. Right. But I remember I went on like a really long drive because that's pretty much all you could do. Yes, <laughs> it was. Anywhere. Yes. So I went for a really long drive with my mom and we just talked about it. And I remember being in the car and being like, I don't want to hold myself back if I don't go to Drexel, if I don't go to Philly, if I don't leave. The only thing holding me back is fear, and I don't want that to dictate right. my life. Right. So no matter what it, it looks like, masked, virtual, I'm going to college, yeah. I'm doing my own life, I'm yeah. moving on. It's very so, smart because it got yeah. very easy to just hunker down at home and not see people and not you know step out mm-hmm. of your comfort zone in, exactly. any, in any way. Um, so you both started um, college a year and a half into the pandemic. Theo um, took a gap year, which we didn't really talk about, but he uh, he did he had been accepted to Drexel and, and then waited a year. Um, in what ways has it? It's hard to know. It's possible to know what your college experience would have been like if it weren't for COVID. But in um, Theo, do you have a sense of how it has impacted your college experience? Except beyond what you just spoke about, how it affected your major choices. I think, I mean, I never, except through my brother, Mm -hmm. who had gone to college four years ahead of me at Michigan, I got to see a little bit of what the college experience looked like. And, but beyond that, I can't see what my college experience would have been like. Mm -hmm. So I can't say whether or not there's a massive change to what I expected because I didn't expect anything, Mm -hmm. because it's a city college. It's not a massive party school, but it's not the smallest party school. I don't know where the art sectors are. I don't know where to go in the city. It was this complete mystery to me, Mm -hmm. and it still mostly is because it's so different. That's what I think a city school allows you to do, is have a complete enigma of a life. Yeah. And to go kind of anywhere you want to and do anything you want because there's so many options. And I had that in my head. And I think COVID or not, Mm -hmm. I've been able to experience that because the city fought back, the city got back Mm -hmm. and survived through the pandemic. And so many of the things that would have been available outside of the pandemic are still there, but there's this camaraderie of we went through something Mm -hmm. and we're still here. Yeah. And Sid, but what about you? Do you have a sense of how it's impacted your college experience? I think we were pretty fortunate that we were able to go back um, in person. I mean, we were masked at the beginning and everything, and we still are in classrooms, but mm-hmm. we were fortunate enough to go in and have that like social setting. Um, there was two weeks in winter quarter where we were virtual, which yes. set us back, which I yes, noticed. It did. But I mean, the biggest thing that I remember that like COVID definitely had an impact was when I was meeting all these people and meeting friends, like when I met you, Tao, I didn't know what the bottom half of your face was. <laughs> right, right. And everybody says that talking about math, mm-hmm. but it's a shock because you, your brain fills in a picture and mm-hmm. then when you actually remove a mask, it is completely different. So I had no idea what any of these people that I was hanging out with yeah. actually look like mm-hmm. until I saw them without a mask. And like now I can't imagine them any differently. But I remember it was a weird click yeah and and i mean everybody experienced that to an extent but when you start college in the midst of that 
virtually everybody you meet is brand new, which means exactly. you don't know what the bottom of anybody's uh, faces look like. Um, and we'll take a break, but and come back, and I want to talk a little bit about you know how how it has really changed, how this experience has changed you um, positively and negatively. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. For the first time in the history of the country and of the history of the United States, the Supreme Court has taken away a constitutional right. I would also describe this day as a day when women in the United States and people who can become pregnant have become second-class citizens. 1015-1400-1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. The Co-Festival closes its 31-year run this weekend with Izell, Ballad of a Landman, a very special show we've been trying to bring here from Eastern Kentucky and New Orleans for three years. Timed with the sun and suitable for all but the very young, this outdoor daylight event begins and ends with a short walk across Hampshire College Farm Center land led by guides and fiddle players. At the performance site, you'll witness an environmental, cultural, and spiritual parable of domination and resilience, one that explores the complexities of climate change, indigenous erasure, land use, and environmental extraction. Reserve now for this Friday or Saturday evening at 6.15 or Sunday morning at 10.15 a.m. Interested? Visit kofest.com. That's K-O-F-E-S-T dot com. The Co-Festival, where the only certainty is surprise. Lundgren Honda. Experience it. Now, it isn't just one thing. It is everything you expect when you're looking for your next car, your first car, or to repair your car. Award-winning customer service, no-hassle, negotiation-free pricing, and friendly, familiar faces you know and trust with your vehicle. All that and the best selection, the most pre-owned vehicles you'll find anywhere in Franklin County and beyond. Over 100 to choose from, including five Honda Civics in stock, five HRVs, five CRVs, and over over 20 half and three quarter ton pickup trucks in stock and ready to roll. Lundgren Honda is constantly loading up on inventory, so experience it. The best selection of new and used vehicles in the tri-state region for the best price you'll find anywhere. Consumer Satisfaction Award winners two years running. Lundgren Honda proudly provides you with an award-winning experience. See the latest selection of new and certified pre-owned cars at 409 Federal Street and LundgrenHondaOfGreenfield.com. Lundgren Honda of Greenfield. Experience it. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. Good afternoon again. This is Megan Zinn with Cabin Fever Roundtable, and I'm talking with Theo Zinn and Sydney Schultz about their experiences in high school and college, um, starting college during the pandemic. Um, and so, um, Sydney, what um, what did you find to be the most difficult? I mean, there's a lot of difficulties with the yeah. pandemic, either when you were still in high school or starting college. What was the most challenging part? I think starting college was semi-easy for me because at that point in my life, I was just ready to move on. Mm -hmm. Yes. But ending high school was really difficult for me because I just remember how I didn't see any of my friends. Yeah. And the thing is, a lot of kids my age took the pandemic to a different level of severity. Mm -hmm. So I was a person that did not go out of my house and I bunkered in and I watched out because I had a friend who was diabetic, so I made sure he was okay. While I saw all my friends going out and hanging out with everybody mm -hmm. and partying. So it kind of was sad to just see your life completely being like pulled away from you. Um, the hardest thing was definitely being at home let me face things that I had kind of put away. Okay. I so good and yeah. bad. Okay. <laughs> so I couldn't process a lot of things that were happening in my life when I was so busy mm -hmm. in high school. Just keep moving forward, right. And being stuck at home with nothing to do forced me to like take a look inside mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. make a difference. So although it was probably the hardest point in my life, like worst I've felt, it provided the most growth because yeah. I decided, okay, I have time. I'm going to work on it. Mm -hmm. Went to therapy, got a job, turned my whole life around, decided um, no one can hold me back. I'm doing this. I'm doing it my way. Went to school, 
and took off. So I'm very happy that I was able to push through it, but it was not easy yeah. at all. There weren't yeah. a lot of resources either. Like mm -hmm. they don't, people would always be like, we're here and reach out. And schools were like mental health support. But in reality, didn't really exist. Yeah, and it's hard, I think, um, it's certainly hard for young people and and not young people to reach out. And when you're in the school setting, the, the mental health experts in the school can see that you need help and you're in the building and they can reach out to you. But when you're home through a screen, mm -hmm. that's a different thing. Um, Theo, what, what did you find to be the biggest challenges for you of, of being at this age and this point in your life during the pandemic? Well, I think for me, being home, definitely kind of in the first few months when I was staying home and it was ending out the senior year and I wasn't seeing people, obviously. I was staying home. I was only seeing my family. My anxiety started rising. Mm -hmm. And it's this thing where you go outside and there's the anxiety of seeing people, talking about it. Hey, what are we going to talk about? The pandemic again. <laughs> again. I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to see people and have that be the only reason to talk to them. And my anxiety started, again, rising based on that, based on COVID and based on everything in my future, reaching critical levels. And that was kind of the hard part of looking into myself was, mm -hmm. why am I so afraid? Why am I so anxious? And I didn't have an answer because I wasn't in therapy. And I wasn't barely kind of acknowledging it outside of talking to myself, which usually doesn't help. And so I went to therapy and I got a job. Mm -hmm. Basically sort of the same thing. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> the answer to COVID, yep. go into therapy and get, get a job. A job exactly. And you know, the therapy wasn't the hard part. The like that looking into myself was definitely a hard part mm -hmm. because I had to take the responsibility during it. And for so long I was looking into myself and just being angry at that mm -hmm. and just being disgusted. But the going to therapy helps you like critically analyze and mm -hmm. don't just look at it. You have to look into it and say, okay, what's wrong? And then you talk to somebody and it helps. And then going to a job provides this routine. And so the hardest part is just feeling stagnant and feeling yeah. stuck and feeling like you're screaming at yourself. <laughs> and if you're in a routine and somebody else is screaming with you, it feels a lot better. And that kind of pulled it out in the end. And then, you know, with the with the things you get out of having a routine and having therapy yeah. and getting more critically, you know, more critically analytical about yourself, you can make progress and you can stay and be with yourself alone and actually feel good. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the flip side of that question, um, and I'll go back to Sid, um, uh, with, and in some ways, this my answer might be the same because you're you're negative for both of you. The negative was a positive in many ways. But but were there positives that came out? Maybe even surprising positives for you? Absolutely. I think probably the most surprising thing was not seeing people forces you to see who you actually want mm -hmm. in your life. Oh uh, yes. So I was able to really see what like the fact that I was doing so poorly by myself. I was not going to then surround myself with people that made me feel worse. I started being able to say to like, okay, this is a boundary that I have mm -hmm. for myself. You're not a good person in my life. I'm not going to have you in my life. Um, or the opposite, which is see the good people yeah. and grab on to them because mm -hmm. you don't necessarily know how long you'll have with them. Um, so that was definitely a positive, just learning to push myself. Like mm -hmm. I think the whole thing was, it was such a big hurdle and like such a big mountain to climb that once you got to the top of it, you I took off yeah. and I kept running. Yeah. I was like, absolutely no looking back. I'm going to no matter what life throws. Yeah. I've but dealt with it. I'll move on. Exactly. You, I, I got through this. I can probably handle most anything. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Theo, what for you, what um, kind of positives came out of this for you? Again, yeah, the negatives becoming a positive. It slowed everything down mm -hmm. to a screeching halt. And that that brought a lot of bad with it, but being able to just, you know, realize how thing, how slow things were going and how everything was the same, you're allowed to finally indulge in things that you weren't able to before. Like, I know there was the trends that happened during COVID of doing certain things out of boredom, but for me, being in film at the time and being into it a lot, I was able to watch something almost every single day, watch a full movie. Mm -hmm. And it's hard for somebody with ADHD, usually, considering everything you have to be doing, but on a COVID day, you could get so much done in terms of watching 
or reading or anything or going outside because you didn't have to worry about yeah. seeing people. You didn't have to worry about being you a social be. human. <laughs> you could be a shut-in. <laughs> and it was culturally, like, it, it, it worked in the culture at the time to be a shut-in. Yeah. And yes, that affected my mental health sort of poorly, but near the end where I could critically analyze myself better, I was able to feel good while just watching movies. And obviously it helped me get into photography because it provided me, which is the perspective of get out and do something with yourself. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Get out and do something with what you have. And what I had was a camera. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I had a question. Yeah, for go you. ahead. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about the transition from filmmaking to photography. What, was there a moment that triggered it or was it just like slowly coming and you could feel it? Yeah. I, when I realized I hate the film industry, <laughs> um, it's not like I'm, I'm not dissuading industry. anyone. It's difficult. It's yeah. very difficult and there's difficult people. And when you go from being so, you know, self-sufficient with a camera and you provide good results and you're happy with yourself, you don't want other people messing with that. And there's so much work that goes into film. And that's why I love film. I love how much work it's put into it, how much passion and love. And for me, I can put all of that into a single photo <laughs> and produce something Beautiful. that is just that I love so much. And I found so much trouble with that in film that I'm a very personal human with art being very personal to me mm -hmm. and being on a film set. I want to have autonomy and that you don't get that at the beginning. Yeah. If, no. you, if you get into film, you need to be ready to work with people and work on something that's not your own. Mm -hmm. And then future on, like later on, maybe make something for your own yeah. or move out of the film industry and make something in the independent scene. I wasn't ready for that. Mm -hmm. And I had these prospects in photography and I ran with it. I took it just as Sid said, I was at the top of the mountain and I was looking at film and photography on either side and all these other things. And I said, I just want to take a picture and run with it. Yeah. yeah. I don't want to be mired in a film set or mm -hmm. mired in a movie itself mired in my writing i want to ex be able to express myself with one single button click yeah and and yeah it's sort of the it sounds like what the pandemic experience taught you was that um you um it's kind of up to you and mm -hmm. if um if you want to, to make your dreams and to make it happen and um and so taking that step of embracing an art form that really is only you. It's um, independent. Yeah. It's independent, not, not in the same kind of collaborative way. Well, thanks guys for being here today. Um, it was great to hear your perspective because we don't hear it a lot. Um, and, and again, I think this is going to be the, you know, probably the defining aspect of your generation. So it's really great to, to hear from you. Um, and we're all set for the night, for the day. Mm -hmm. Good night, everybody. Happy talk, keep talking, happy talk. Talk about things you'd like to do. This is the Afternoon you Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg. 101.5 WHMP. Missed an episode of The Bill Newman Show? Want to revisit a conversation from legendary civil rights attorney from Ashfield, Buzz Eisenberg? Click on podcasts at whmp.com. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. The only live and local talk in the Valley and for the Valley. WHMP. It's the sound of life in the Valley. WHMP.com. I didn't think it was possible for me to be an alcoholic. I was 24 with a good career. I thought that alcoholism only happened to middle-aged men and celebrities. I thought something else was making me sick, shaky, and afraid to face people. Then I found AA and discovered it was The wasn't only live and local else. talk in it the valley alcohol. and for AA the valley. WHMP Northampton, WHMQ Greenfield, a Northampton Radio Group station. It's five o'clock.